Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. On June 30th, the Supreme Court issued the last two opinions from the 2021-2022 term. One of those decisions, West Virginia versus EPA, put strict limits on the Environmental Protection Agency's power to regulate greenhouse gases. Joining us today to discuss the decision and its possible implications is Amy Westervelt. She's an investigative journalist and the executive producer and lead reporter for Drilled, an independent news outlet focused on climate accountability. Amy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been into Washington, D.C. There's a popular pizza restaurant called Two Amy's. So today we're we're running running Two Amy's here. (laughs) So tell me about, for starters, tell me about the rules at the center of West Virginia versus EPA. There was one from the Obama administration and one Mm -hmm. from the Trump administration. Yes. So this case initially centered on the Clean Power Plan, which was an Obama policy that would allow the EPA to to enforce some emissions reductions limits on the power sector in a, in a system-wide way. And that's that's like the, the, the issue that the court was taking up here was whether or not the EPA can regulate the entire energy system or if it's it's limited to regulating kind of one power plant at a time, right? Um, the clean power plan was never actually put into effect. That's like problem one with this case. It, it was never implemented. It was replaced by Trump's affordable clean energy plan, um, which did virtually nothing about emissions at power plants. Um, and then that was scrapped when Biden came in. And a DC court said that the Biden administration could consider implementing the clean power plan. The Biden administration said, actually, I think we're going to come up with our own plan. And that's the point where the folks who had filed West Virginia versus EPA went to the Supreme Court to say, they're, they're going to do this thing that we said was bad. You need to weigh in here. Um, so that's kind of the weird, messy, messy path that this case <laughs> took. And so just to follow up and for the sake of clarity, who were the litigants on each side of the issue in the Supreme Court? Uh, for West Virginia versus EPA, this like this this um, hearing. Okay, so the litigants were what the state of West Virginia, several other uh, Republican states. Um, this was a this was a Raga case. It's the Republican Attorneys General Association kind of put this case together in 2015. There were several Republican Attorneys General um, on board uh, at the beginning who were still on board at this point now, and also a coal company in West Virginia. I, I want to say Westmoreland, but I don't have my, um, my little note in front of me. Yeah. Um, so those were the, those were the plaintiffs bringing this case and the United States government is, is, you know, the one or the EPA is, is, um, is defending the case. And then there was also at the, at least at the oral argument, there was an argument by some of the power companies? Yes, some of the power companies also joined in in this as, as interveners. So yes, they they were also saying that this would be 
owner, you know, that regulations like these would be onerous to them, that the economic cost would be great. That, that was kind of, that seems to be the main justification that the court used for taking up this case was that it, it would have, you know, an, an emission scheme like the one that was proposed in the clean power plan, which Biden seemed to be, you know, prepared to implement at least something like it um, would have such a large economic impact that the court should um, should weigh in here. And I feel like the power companies were kind of there to make that point. But again, as you said, when the case came to the Supreme Court, neither the CPP nor the ACE rule, the Affordable Clean Energy rule, was in effect. Correct. The Biden administration had said it was going to issue a new rule. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions before the court was whether or not the case could go forward. Right. Um, And then what did the court say on that question? They claimed that this is a quote unquote major questions case. Um, And I think to me, that is like kind of the really big news in this case above and beyond the fact that yes, it does um, restrict the EPA's ability to particularly use this one section of the Clean Air Act to regulate emissions at power plants. But the big kind of reveal was just how much the entire ruling hinged on major questions doctrine. So this idea that, you know, when a regulatory agency does something that has a major economic or political impact, then, you know, it's, it's appropriate for the court to weigh in. And that, you know, Congress is the one that should be explicitly telling agencies what to do in these situations. So, I mean, I think I, I, I think the phrase major questions was mentioned like 40 times in, in um, Justice Roberts' opinion. It was like, really like, this is why. But yeah, um, starting with this is why we have standing um, or this case has standing is because, you know, based on major questions doctrine, you know, this absolutely meets the test of, of having an extraordinary impact on economics and politics, whether or not that's valid. I, I don't know, but, <laughs> but that's what they said. So what did the dissent say both about the major questions doctrine and yeah. the question before the court more generally? Yeah. The dissent said, no, I don't think so. Um, you know, Justin Kagan basically said, you know, the court should not be setting climate policy and laid out a whole bunch of, of scientific basis for why this, you know, a, a policy to deal with greenhouse gas emissions would make sense and why it is well within the EPA's purview and all of those things. And that actually this doesn't even meet the the precedent laid out by major questions doctrine cases previous to this. What, I guess I want to break down the impact of the decision on two levels. Mm -hmm. The first is what does the ruling on Thursday mean for the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gases? You know, I, I feel like I'm, I've seen this kind of overstated. Like I think everyone was so primed for a terrible decision in this case that I saw a lot of like hot takes that were like, the EPA can no longer regulate greenhouse gas emissions. That's not true. It actually really very narrowly dealt with section 111D of the Clean Air Act, which has to do with how the EPA regulates emissions at 
power plants in particular. And um, I mean, it, it doesn't even restrict the EPA's ability to regulate emissions at power plants or to regulate emissions at existing power plants. Those are two things that people thought might be kind of on the line here. It really says you need to stick to one power plant at a time and the immediate emissions coming from that power plant. So people in the energy space talk about this as being like within the fence line or beyond the fence line of power plants. And what they said was like, you're limited to within the fence line and you're also limited to, you know, the emissions coming from each individual plant rather than some sort of system-wide thing. But it was weird because the way that Roberts wrote it was almost as though like, EPA was stepping on the Department of Energy's toes in trying to um, push a, a, like a system-wide energy transition. So, so it was like, there was this distinction that kept being made between um, regulating the, like the source of the emissions versus the emissions themselves. I'm not sure what he was really trying to get at there, but, but that's something that kept coming up. So anyway, basically, you know, they, they can't do something that would be considered like a cap and trade program or sort of um, an industry-wide emissions scheme, but they can still set emissions limits. They can still regulate uh, greenhouse gases and particularly CO2. Um, yeah, they just, I don't know, but it's, it's very like, it's a little bit like a Goldilocks kind of um, ruling because they, you know, it's sort of like you can regulate emissions, but don't do it so much that it puts coal producers out of business, you know? So it's like, okay, but what is that sweet spot? And like, is it, it's very odd for the court to be the one deciding what is or isn't kind of too, too much on, uh, on an emissions regulation scheme. And you've talked about this a little bit already, but in terms of what the court said about the major questions doctrine, is this ruling likely to have broader effect other agencies? Yeah, I think so. I think that's the, to me, like that was the big takeaway. It was like, oh, a lot of people were kind of prepared for them to overturn Massachusetts versus EPA or to like explicitly gut the Chevron deference, that kind of stuff. But I think the um, the kind of emphasis on major questions doctrine is it's just it's like okay yeah this really is going to be part of a whole um, campaign or strategy to you know go after the quote unquote administrative state and kind of defang regulatory agencies so I I imagine they'll go after OSHA. Um, maybe the Department of Energy. I think, I think really any agency is kind of, you know, potentially a target here. This was, I guess, the, actually the third decision this term involving the major questions doctrine that they also relied on it in the vaccines case mm -hmm. and in a case involving the eviction ban because yep. of COVID. And Roberts referenced both of those cases, and I'm sure he'll reference this case when they take up the Clean Water Act next session. Um, so it seems like, I don't know, it just, to me, it feels like, you know, they're, they're like trying to build the foundation for being able to use this more and more. 
they don't have to overrule Chevron. Exactly. Like who needs to when you can obliterate it with the court gets to weigh in on everything. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One point that I found really interesting at the oral arguments in February that Solicitor General Elizabeth Bielager stressed was that even without the CPP in effect, the energy industry was still achieving the goals in the CPP. And in fact, it did so ahead of schedule. I guess, is there a reason to believe that even without regulation that they will continue to make these kinds of changes? Or is it less likely without the EPA telling them to do that? Um, I think they will like, I, you know, big sectors like the power sector don't like start down a path and then go backwards and change course. It's very expensive and inefficient for them to do that. Right. So it, like these, you know, they're already kind of on this path, the, um, you know, the, the price of renewables just keeps going down and, I think, I don't know, that that's the other thing that's really odd to me is I'm like, it almost feels like the court intervening in some last ditch effort to save the coal industry, you know, and, and like, in this bizarre way that the people bringing the case are all, you know, supposedly big free market advocates. Um, but, but here you have a policy that really was just following behind what the industry was already doing. Like that's the thing, the CPP was not an aggressive climate policy by any stretch of the imagination. So like, yeah, it like pe- the, the emissions reductions that were expected in that have already been met and then some. And I think that that will continue mostly because of various state policies. So I guess in, in one way you could say that, you know, this doesn't do much in terms of, of what the, um, the plan was for that policy or, or something like it. And it also, I mean, honestly, like on the face of it, this particular ruling doesn't do that much. I think it's more like what it means as sort of a harbinger of where the court's at and what's to come. I think, I think that when they get a climate case that actually allows them to to rein in the EPA's ability to, to regulate greenhouse gases, they'll take that opportunity. I just think this was like too weird of a case for them to do it. Um, so to me, I'm like, oh, okay, this means that there's this very short window for the federal government to, to act if they're going to um, before you know things change again. And then I guess following up on that question, where does the Biden administration go from here? They've got this ruling that says, as you as you suggested, you can do some things, but not too much. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, well, there's a few things. One, you know, the EPA already regulates particulate matter, which is also called soot and is created. <laughs> particulate matter sounds much better. Particulate matter, it's soot. It's, just, it's created by the same thing that creates greenhouse gases, which is the combustion of fossil fuels. And the coal industry, you know, tried to fight those regulations for a very long time too, but it's much harder to make the case to people that like polluted air is fine than than it is to make the case that like you can wait on climate change, which, you know, seems abstract and far off to people still. So 
those, the, the rules around particulate matter actually were just tightened. Um, so that, that process is already kind of in place and that will have an impact on greenhouse gas emissions, even though it's not a quote unquote climate policy or an emissions reduction policy. Um, there are a few things like that where, you know, things that the EPA already has authorization and like a long precedent doing get at greenhouse gases too, without necessarily saying it. So there's that kind of, you know, backdoor <laughs> way. Um, there is also, there's a petition at the EPA right now to um, ask them to make a determination under the Toxic Substances Control Act about whether greenhouse gases pose a risk to human health or the environment. And they have 60 days to respond. And if they say, yes, it does pose a risk, then they're required by law to make a rule that would mitigate that risk. And the very interesting thing about that right now is that um, Tosca was reauthorized in 2016 with some new language that very explicitly says the EPA cannot consider political or economic impacts when they're making a rule about um, the risk of a toxic substance. So to me, I'm like, that's an interesting one because maybe that gets around this major questions doctrine test of having an impact on politics and economics, you know? So yeah, there's that. I've, I've been seeing some folks talk about leaning on the Fed and monetary policy as a way to, to kind of get at this as well. So, you know, there are various ways that that the Fed could um, help spur renewable energy by, you know, buying debt in the renewable energy space, that kind of thing, and sort of indicate a less preference for fossil fuel developments via their discount rates for loans and things like that. So I think there's some there's some potential there. And, you know, the Fed is kind of beyond the reach of the Supreme Court, or at least it has been, you know, <laughs> historically. So, so that feels like a kind of safe place for, for them to look. And then, you know, get some freaking legislation passed while you can, man. Like, you know, <laughs> there's like, this is happening because Congress has failed to pass legislation right? Like that's the, that's the gist of this ruling. It's like, they're saying, oh, the EPA can't do this because Congress hasn't passed legislation that tells them to do it. So, you know, I do feel like get, you know, getting Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Cinema to, um, to come to the table on some kind of. Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just reminded yeah. of the line. I can't remember the context, but the, the court years ago suggested to Don Varelli when he was the Solicitor General that Congress could take action. And you could just hear sort of the disbelief in Don's voice, like, this Congress? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and then, you know, there is a lot happening at the state and local level. Um, California just passed $50 billion in climate funding and signed like a major bill around plastics, which I think people always forget also involves the oil industry. Um, you know, <laughs> it's made from petroleum folks. So yeah, uh, I think, you know, there, there are things happening at the state level as well. I also like, I don't know, I, I, I do wonder what impact some of the, the international 
litigation will have on U.S. companies too. There's a few cases where where U.S. companies are are being hauled into court in other places as well. So, so yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. But but you know, I think I don't know. I I, I think that like there's a there's a certain amount of uh, of talk happening right now. At, like you know, the Biden administration's hands are now tied and they can't do anything and. I just don't think that's true. And I also don't think it's like true enough to stop them from trying. Well, you've given us a lot to keep an eye on. Thank you for <laughs> unpacking this. And if any of this makes its way back up to the Supreme Court, we'd love to have you back on again. Yeah. Yeah. I'll definitely be keeping an eye on on other climate cases that seem to be weaving their way <laughs> there. So, yeah. All right. Well, and we'll be checking. We'll be checking drill. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team. Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser. 